So we want to continue in our lessons in Christology and talk about another aspect of our union with Christ. And to give you a quick summary of uh, last two weeks ago when we talked about union with Christ, um, I opened up our union with Christ with Ephesians uh, 1 verse 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, we uh, love that passage, do we not? Uh, it's a grand passage that speaks of our union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It speaks of our election, our predestination, and all these other things. But, saints, there is a uh, there is a problem when we come to this passage of Ephesians 4 in relation to our union with Christ. Because many have tried to take this verse and do things with it that the scriptures, quite frankly, I should say the totality of scriptures, uh, quite frankly, uh, do not amen um, their, their interpretation of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And if you remember two weeks ago, um, when I spoke about our union with Christ, I spoke about our union with Christ uh, being from all eternity, being from all eternity. So we have this eternal union with Christ. I mean, we again, we just read Ephesians chapter one, verse four, that we're chosen in Christ. So how in the world do we have a an internal union with Jesus Christ? Without saying we have been eternally justified in Christ. That is to say that we have been saved from all eternity. That is one of the big dilemmas when we're saying, okay, we're united to Christ. He chose us in Christ. But what does it mean to be chosen in Christ, united to Christ? That allows us to not fall into the pitfall of saying that we have been eternally justified in Christ. Thereby, we don't need to repent of our sins and believe upon Christ upon birth. You get the logic of where I'm, where I'm going. But also, too, think about... Uh, um, this 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 two atom Christology where we have um, two federal heads that you're either united to right you're either in Adam or you're either in Christ so for those that say we're chosen in Christ then what do you say about you being in Adam is Adam ever your federal head do you go from being chosen in Christ in eternity and then upon conception then you're united to Adam and then upon belief upon Christ then you're back united to Jesus Christ do you go from you know, this federal head to this federal head and then back to uh, Jesus Christ, right? How does this work? And so what I presented to you, essentially what John Owen presents, and, and he walks this tightrope very carefully when he talks about our union with Christ being a decretal union with Christ. That we're in union with Christ, but only in the will and intention of God. That we're actually not vitally, mystically, or spiritually united to him, the same way that you're united to him now, but you're united to him in the sense of God will unite him, uh, yourself to Christ in time. That's the union that you have in eternity. That God says, I will unite the this elect person in time and space upon belief in Jesus Christ. So that is your union. And we looked at Christ being our surety. Not that God is saying... Um, um, I will happen upon a certain condition, which it will, which, of course, we want to um, we, we, we do want to hold on to um, the conditions of 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 us being united to to Jesus Christ. But we looked at Christ being our surety 
meaning that it will come to pass. That us being united to Christ will come to pass, not because of what we do, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ will bring a complete and full salvation to his people, and in the fullness of time will send his spirit and then unite that elect one to Jesus Christ. So, since before the foundation of the world, we are chosen in Christ, and we are united to Christ in the will and intention of God, that is, in eternity, then the question is this, how do we move from a right standing, or have a right to salvation, to an actual possession of salvation? So, in eternity, you have a right to salvation, just as if um, a father left his son, you know, his inheritance. Um, while the father's still alive, the son does not have an actual possession of the inheritance, but rather the son has a right to the inheritance. But as soon as the father passes away, then the son goes from having a right to an inheritance to actually possessing the inheritance. So now we're asking, we have a right to Jesus Christ, to salvation, to union with Christ in eternity. How does it move from a right to now being an actual possession? How do we actually possess and how are we actually mystically, mysteriously, spiritually, vitally united to Jesus Christ? Okay. How does our decreal union of, with Christ transform into an actual union with Christ? And it's that second aspect um, that is vital to our union with Christ. And we know this in our everyday lives, saints. Think of a marriage union or a marriage covenant. Would you say that a marriage union was actually complete if the bride never met her groom, if the bride never met her groom, think of a young woman who's on the verge of getting married. And when this one young woman thinks of her marriage, she doesn't think of merely um, signing a legal document that says now we're married and she's happy now. Or when she thinks of her her marriage or her wedding, uh, she doesn't merely think of her wedding dress or the catering or her first dance or the wedding venue. But this young woman who's on the verge of getting married is thinking about when after the wedding, she and her husband will actually begin life as one. That's a true marriage union. That is a true marriage union. I mean, what do we say about those people who have on paper that they're married, but don't actually live together? Are they truly, really Living life as one. Are they really one? In order for a marriage then to be considered an actual union, the two parties must come together and they must live life together. And likewise, we can say, saints, our decretal union with Christ is not enough. Our decretal union with Christ from all eternity is not enough. Uh, it's not enough for God to say that he will unite us to his son, Jesus Christ. But there must actually be a bringing together of the two parties. There must be an actual bringing together the two parties. Yes, we are united to Christ in eternity by way of God's decree. He is ours. We are his. He is our surety. But saints, if we are only left with our union with Christ by way of God's decree, then that is equivalent to two people signing the right, uh, uh, a legal marriage document but never actually sharing life together. What do you, what do you call that union then? What is that? And many of us will say it's not a union. A.W. Pink sums this up well. He says, God established a legal or federal union between the Redeemer and those who were to be redeemed by Him. 
so that they become answerable or he become answerable for them to the divine justice. But something more. And here we get into this vital, mystical, spiritual union. But something more was necessary in order to their actual enjoyment of the benefits of Christ's representation. So he's saying there's something more that needs to be added to merely just us being united to Christ in eternity. In other words, it's not enough for Christ impute to us his righteousness. But he also must impute and give to us and impart to us his very life. His very life. Now, why is this important, friends? Why can't we just say that, uh, why can't we just be united to Christ in the will and intention of God? Why must we need, must there need be an actual coming together of both parties? Well, the reason, saints, is because before we were saints and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we were sinners. Why is there, why is it necessary that there is, there, there needs to be an actual coming together of Christ and the elect because before we were in Christ, before we were clothed in Christ's righteousness, we were sinners in Adam. We were sinners in Adam. And not merely that we committed acts of sin. We still do that now as saints of God, but we were sinners with respect to our standing before holy God. Sin defined who we are. It is as if, and it's not technically speaking true, but it's as if sin is essential to our nature. Because no one is born a non-sinner. Everyone's a sinner. The guilt of Adam's sin is now passed on to us and we take full responsibility of Adam's sin and transgression. Upon conception, we can all say like David in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in guilt and in sin my mother conceived me. As I said two weeks ago, the reality, friends, is that although you are elect, you're not born saved. Although you're elect, you're not born saved. You're not born already um, 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 with the benefits of Jesus Christ. St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that we were at one time separate from Christ. That is not a union with Christ. So yes, while we can say prior to the cross, the elect were ordained to eternal life, the elect have a right to eternal life, but God's decree to save the elect doesn't change their condition upon birth, upon their birth. Just because you are chosen to be saved doesn't mean and doesn't um, doesn't um, it doesn't wipe away that once you are conceived, Adam's sin is given to you. You are now you are now responsible of Adam's sin and guilt. No elect one is born already united to Christ. And also we can say that. And even in eternity, you're not even united to Adam yet. You're not united to Adam in eternity, but you are united to Adam upon conception. So we are fairly united to Adam. And this is why I said our union with Christ must go further than us being decretedly declared to be united to Christ. There must be an actual coming together of Jesus Christ and his bride. He must. And if you're following uh, in our Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, um, Sunday school lessons, uh, Sunday school lessons, he must advance our nature. He must bring us to who and to be like him. So how does our union with Christ then become actualized? How do we go from being potentially united to Christ to now being actually united to Christ? Well, consider with me the first point. And um, and that is our union with Christ is activated and sustained by the Holy Spirit. Our union with Christ is activated and sustained by the Holy Spirit. To open this point up, A.W. Pink says this. But at the new birth, Christ unites them to himself in a vital way. So at a new birth, you go from being 
decreedly united to Christ, now to another union with Christ, and that is a vital union. Vital, when you think of vital, and I'm going to say this a lot, think of lively, life, okay? Vitality. This he does by sending his spirit. So how do we, how do we go from being decreedly united to Christ to vitally united to Christ? He does this by sending his spirit to take possession of them and communicate to them a principle of the spiritual life, namely his own life. Christ's life has been given to your life, whereby they go from uh, they, they are being made living members of his body, the church. And then he says this wonderful line. We were in Christ representatively. That is to say, we were in Christ as Christ represented us, but we were not actually in Christ. But now we are in Christ vitally. Vitally. That is to say, in eternity, we were united to Christ by way of the eternal son being our surety. And now the believer's life is united to Christ in this way, that you take on the very life of Christ. Now, how does this union, this vital union take place? How do we become vitally united to Christ? Well, simply put, upon the condition of faith, the believer is united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Just like prior to our birth, we are not yet sinners uh, and, and united to Christ. But once we are conceived in our mother's wombs, then we are actually possessors of Adam's guilt. So in eternity, you're not a possessor of Adam's guilt. Right? You're not guilty of Adam's sin, but upon conception, then you are guilty of Adam's sin. Then you are a sinner in need of a savior. So likewise, it is not until the new birth, the new birth, it is not until we are quickened by the Holy Spirit that we become actual possessors of Christ's merits. So you see the, the two Adam logic I'm using here, right? Before before you were born, you weren't united to Adam. Upon birth, then you're united to Adam, right? Um, before you were saved, you're not united to Christ. But upon the new birth, then you're united to Christ. Okay? Again, this is what the teachers, uh, him teachers, this is what the scriptures teach. While Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he says in John 3, verses 5 through 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. If it is our material birth that unites us to Adam, then our spiritual birth is what unites us to Jesus Christ. Again, if if it is our material birth that unites us to Adam, then it is our spiritual birth that unites us to Jesus Christ. And here in John 3, Jesus is saying that it is the Holy Spirit that activates this new birth in the person, where they go from being united to Adam to then being united to Jesus Christ. The Spirit, as it were, brings together the two wedding parties. The Spirit unites the bride, the church, and the groom, Jesus Christ, and brings them together as one. He is um, He is sort of the knit, the glue that brings together these two parties that were at infinite distance from one another. How vital is the Spirit's role in our union with Christ? Can we be united to Christ without the Spirit? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, 9, however... You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the spirit, if you don't have Christ's spirit, that you're not united to Christ. You're not united to the one who is the sender of the spirit, the father sending the spirit with the son. 
So there is no union with Christ apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So saints, simply put, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you believe upon Christ, then yes, you have the Spirit, and yes, you are in union with Christ, a vital union with Jesus Christ. Now, what does the Spirit do within our lives now? What does he do? Because of time, this won't be a comprehensive list, uh, but we will look at these these things um, in coming Lord's Days. But I want us to notice just two. And just, reg- which, just with regard to what the Spirit does. Mind you, the Spirit does all these other things we're going to talk about. Justification, sanctification, and all these other things, okay? Um, but with regard to just two this uh, afternoon. Number one, the Spirit regenerates. The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit regenerates. Regeneration, says Louis Burkhoff, is that act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man. And the governing disposition of soul is made holy. So in order for you to live a life of of godliness, there must be a principle within you that allows you to live a life of godliness. That is the Holy Spirit. And we can say, and you can go back to past sermons that I've done, the Holy Spirit, when he when he indwells in you, it's not just the Holy Spirit indwells you and it's just there. But the Holy Spirit indwells with you and he gives you these principles by which you are to live as godly as Christ has called you to live. We could think of the virtues. We could think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that enable us to live the way God has called us to live. Louis Barkoff will go on to say, simply put, it is that work of the Holy Spirit by which we experience a change of heart. Change of heart really being um, a synonym for a change in all of our faculties in all of who we are. Okay, so the doctrine of regeneration um, is that the Holy Spirit changes all of our faculties and we can just reduce faculties as merely um, simply this, the intellect and the will, the intellect and the will so that we may believe upon Christ. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, were we able to ascend to the truth of the gospel message? Now, if you've been in my Sunday morning uh, Sunday school, you already know where I'm going here. Before we were saved, were we able, could we, let's put it this way, could the gospel message be presented to us and could we, in our Adamic state, in our, you know, in Adam's state, could we assent to those truths and believe those truths? No. No. In our natural state, we cannot assent to, um, thanks God hung up. We cannot ascend to, uh, we cannot ascend to, uh, the, the spiritual truths of Christianity, right? John Owen speaks of this well. He says, and notwithstanding the perception which the mind may obtain unto in the truth of the gospel proposals and the conviction it may, it may, uh, it may have of the necessity of obedience, yet is not the will able to apply itself unto any spiritual act thereof. Owen is simply saying, that you cannot, your mind cannot ascend to gospel proposals, and your will cannot obey those gospel proposals. That's essentially what he's saying. So then he says, um, um, without any ability, right, uh, immediately uh, in it by the power of the Spirit of God, or rather, unless the Spirit of God, by His grace, do affect the act of willing in it. We can't accept the truths of the gospel. This is why the Holy Spirit, working with our nature, working with our nature, supernaturally elevates our nature. We could say 
elevates our intellect and will to do something that is beyond what we could do when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, when you're dead in trespasses and sins, can you believe the gospel? No. Could you could you believe the gospel and then say, yes, I want to obey what Christ is saying in the gospel? No, you couldn't. You need a principle within you that will enable you to believe. Well, what is that principle? The Holy Spirit. Grace. Right? In order to believe a supernatural truth, right, you must be, to a certain respect, supernaturally elevated yourself. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. It is only that which is born of spirit can fully comprehend, or at least apprehend, the things that the spirit is bringing forth. So the spirit that elevates our minds to accept the truth of the gospel and moves our will toward repentance. Um, this is very interesting. I, I mentioned this in our in our Sunday school class, but we are so used to us moving toward the good, right? So anything that we choose in life, the thing that we choose is the good, right? Whether it be the drinks that we drink or the shoes that we wear or the things that we do or the words that we say, we're always choosing the good. So something's presented to us and then we make a judgment, right? And we judge whether that thing is good or not. When we judge whether it's good or not, right? Let's say it is good. We move toward it. Now, the interesting thing is this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate good. Then why don't we choose him? Since we're so used to choosing the good. Again, back to the point, we can't. We can't choose the ultimate good. We can't choose life. There must be the Holy Spirit working within us. So we can say that the Holy Spirit is the one who supernaturally elevates us. And then when he does so, and this is beautiful here, when he does so, he puts us then in real contact with Jesus Christ. He elevates our minds, right? He moves our wills. And in many ways, when the gospel message is being presented, it is as if Jesus Christ is preaching that gospel message to that individual. And you are believing the words of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit puts you in actual contact. So then we can say that that decretal union upon faith, that decretal union, that union that you had with Christ in eternity is then actualized and realized by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us and uh, puts us in real contact with Jesus Christ. And the great result of the Spirit's work in uniting us to Jesus Christ is a spiritual, mystical, and vital union with our Lord and Savior. Let's consider one of those uh, results before we close quickly. And that is our vital union with Jesus Christ. What does this mean, vital union? What it, this, we're not used to speaking of uh, being vitally united to Jesus Christ, but it has a, a deep um, reform um, um, pedigree, but also is spoken of in the scriptures. First Corinthians 6.17 says this, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. As I say that if you have the spirit, you have the same spirit that indwelt Christ. It's not the spirit that used to indwell Christ. It is the spirit that indwelt Christ and is given to you. You share the same spirit. Um, I don't know how long it takes for a believer to realize this. But the same spirit that actively motivated and moved and helped and carried the human nature of Christ is the same spirit that you have, believer. 
Um, I mean, we can just stop there and just con- this is where this is where contemplation comes in. Just contemplate that the one who was truly human was given the spirit and that same spirit is then poured out to you. Of course, Christ is given the spirit without measure. Right. But no less. You have the same spirit, the same spirit. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 or 13. For just as the body is one yet and yet has many parts in all the parts of the body, though they are many are one body. So also is Christ for by one spirit. We're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We are uh, we were all made to drink of one spirit. That is to say, by drinking of one spirit, we are made to be a part of one body with Christ. And what this teaches us, saints, is our union with Christ is not a union with Christ's benefits. You don't have a union with Christ. You don't have a union with Christ uh, uh, with regard to justification, sanctification, although you do, and we will look at those. But it's not merely a union with Christ of a legal status. That is to say that you are now sons and daughters uh, in the Son, Jesus Christ. But first and foremost, our union with Christ is a vital union with Christ's life. With Christ's life. And saints, this is how we must first think of salvation. Salvation is not strictly about you receiving the benefits of Christ. We don't come to Jesus to get salvation. But we come to Jesus who is salvation. We get Christ. As believers in Christ, we are not living on the benefits of Christ. You're not living off of justification, sanctification. But you are living on Christ himself. Christ. And although, yes... Technically speaking, we are to detach the benefits of Christ and who he is in his person. Um, but nevertheless, we aren't to undermine his person itself. In salvation, we receive Jesus Christ and his life, which include the benefits that flow into us. Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 brings us out. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Classic text. We all know it. We all love it. We all can quote it. But notice, Paul here is speaking of a vital union with Jesus Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, Paul, you weren't on the cross with Christ. You weren't suddenly merged into Christ when Christ was was dying on the cross. So how can you say that a past event... Right. That happened. I don't know when it happened in Paul's day, but whenever it happened that you were crucified with Christ. How can you say that now, Paul, when you weren't actually really crucified with Christ? Where are your nail? Where, where, where are the holes in, in your in your uh, in your wrists or, or hands and feet? And what Paul is saying here is when the believer has the spirit, then the believer is united to the death experience of Jesus Christ. That is to say, over 2,000 years ago, with our respect, saints, when Christ died, the believer died with him. The believer died with him. And do you notice what he says next? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, by the Spirit, Christ's life is being communicated to you. And it's animating us in our spiritual life. To animate something is to cause it to move cause it to move. It gives power and energy to operate. Um, 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 
You could think of someone who's, and I heard this, 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 uh, great, um, this great point on this. You could, you could think of someone who's, who's pulling the string, uh, to trying to toll the bell. Right? Um, um, you, you could say that your hands, right, uh, uh, gives, gives, uh, or rather, the string itself, it connects your hands to the bell. Right. And it animates and it gives off this energy that you do not have in and of yourself to do. Just as the soul animates the body and gives it life. Right. The soul is the is the one that allows you to see that allows you to hear the way you do. Right. If you don't have a soul, then your body can't function. That is why uh, souls go somewhere and the body just stays there when someone dies. Right. The, the body is no longer animated, being animated. Then we can say then. Christ by his spirit, Christ, Jesus Christ, the one in heaven by his spirit right now, currently, saint, is animating you. Is animating you. The spirit transfers power and activity and life from Christ's life in who is the head. And this is done first in regeneration. He makes us come alive in regeneration to believe the gospel, but then continues to give us life now. Saying, how is it that you right now are able to, 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 to stick it out and, and, you know, at two o'clock when we all would probably be sleeping, how is it that you're able to all look at me and be fully aware and attentive of what's being saying? Because Christ is animating you. He's giving you energy and power. He makes us come alive to believe the gospel, then he continues to give us life now. Now, this doesn't mean that our life gets lost in Christ's life. We don't merge into Christ and all these other things and this weird thing. But the life that we live is Christ's life in us. The life that we live is Christ's life in us. So in many ways, we are replicating the very life of Christ, the same life that he lived on earth. That is why you still suffer now. Because you, you are, you are living in the way in which your head lived. In a mysterious way, as A.W. Pink says, as the soul and the body of man are so united as to form one entire person, so God's elect and their head are so united as to form one mystical and spiritual body of the church. You can't do anything apart from your body. Uh, I used this example a while ago, but think of uh, when you wake up. Uh, you can't say, uh, uh, bottom down, you stay on the bed, head, uh, go brush your teeth. And then the head, you know, okay, pops off and then goes to the bathroom and then the body stays on the bed. No, whatever the head does, the body does. This is why Paul, and this is, and this is where the, the great application, which I think is all of application, but the great application is this, one of them rather, is how can Paul say, I have been crucified with Christ? How can Paul say that I have been raised with Christ? How can Paul say that I am seated with Christ? How can Paul say that I'm a citizen uh, of heaven with Christ? How can he say these things? Paul, you're not actually there. You haven't been actually, you weren't raised with Christ and all these other things. Actually, uh, physically speaking, how can you say these things? Because whatever happens to the head happens to the body. And because you are so vitally connected to Christ, whatever Christ has and obtained in his life is yours. Is yours, saints. As it was said this morning in Pastor Antonio's last point, I'm closing here. As he alluded to the Song of Psalms, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, beautiful allusion that he made by my, my dad. Where Christ in the groom, uh, uh, Christ the groom, he, he's knocking on the bride's door. And, and 
the 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 groom or the, the bride rather lets the groom in, lets Christ in, and saints that is a beautiful way of thinking of our union with Christ. What happens when a when a groom and a bride, when a husband and a wife are in a home together? What are they doing? They're sharing life as one. They're sharing life as one. And saints, this is the relationship now that you have with Christ. That Christ is your life and yours is his life. And you are vitally connected to Jesus Christ. There's much more I can say. Um, but I pray that God will allow us to contemplate these rich truths now um, as we come to the table of fellowship with the one whom we are united to. Let's pray.